Good morning. Good morning. I missed you guys last week. All righty. Let's go ahead and begin our class with, with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come together and study your word today. We pray that you will be with us to enlighten our minds, that we can know you, your methods, your character, and come into a unity of your love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number six in our quarterly discipleship. And the uh, title for today's lesson is Ethnicity and Discipleship. Ethnicity and Discipleship. Somebody read the, the memory verse and the first paragraph from Sabbath's lesson for us, please. <coughs> I have become all things to all men, that I might, by all means, save some. Jim felt called to take the gospel to a foreign country. Upon arrival, he discovered that the people had a test for foreigners to earn the right to stay among them. The foreigner had to swallow and not regurgitate a potion. If a person failed the test, he or she had to leave immediately. Otherwise, they could be eaten by the tribe. Jim watched the tribe prepare a potion of milk, human saliva, blood, chewed up herbs, and other herbal concoctions. It looked and smelled sickening. All he could do was pray and drink. To everyone's amazement, and especially his own, Jim drank it and held it down, earning the right to remain. Any, uh, any volunteers to go to the mission field? <laughs> what do you think about that? The point, uh, the point uh, I think that they put this in there, that sometimes we have to do things in order to get by people's prejudices and biases. Interestingly enough, we uh, sent a Good News Tour set from the 2006 set to a guy in India who has been really, really loving the message, and he was wanting to... Um, to use it to, to spread around to, to the people he knows in India. However, he wrote back and said that there were some problems, a couple of problems. One, the, the music we chose as an introduction uh, really is, is, is just playing while, the, uh, while the, you know, the, the, the selections come up. It's not even part of the program, just kind of the background music is by a non-Christian musician. And the people in India would, would see that as mixing godliness with worldliness, and, and they wouldn't even listen to anything on the tape because there's an, a, a non-Christian musician uh, putting the music on uh, as, the, uh, as, the, as the credits are rolling by. Uh, they said that, uh, that, if you remember the original 2006, Marco's hair, uh, he had some gel on his hair and it was kind of spiky looking and they said that that would be too worldly and that people would not listen to the tapes because of the way his hairstyle was and that they would think that we were mixing worldliness with godliness and, and, and they wouldn't even consider the message. And so uh, just interestingly enough and there was a couple other things like that that really had nothing to do with the message but it had to do with people's prejudices, people's biases such that they wouldn't even open their minds to hear the message and the, Paul is saying here in our text today, you know, being all things to all people, suggesting that if you are are aware that people have such closed minds, biases, prejudices, that, you, that we ought to be willing to try to meet them where they are in order to open the door for truth to come in. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. What do, you all, what do you all think? Have you had experiences where you've had to do something like that? You may have to change your hairstyle if you have hair. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ch- change hairstyle if you have hair. Yes. <laughs> Other thoughts? Yeah, what do you think about the idea of uh, visiting in someone's home and, and they serve you a meal and, and what they put on the table isn't on your diet? 
Meat would serve before you? I mean, I can tell you, human saliva and blood would not be on my diet. <laughs> That's what, the, what was described in this first paragraph. Uh, it's pretty... Pardon? Pray before you eat. Pray. <laughs> yes, you got to wonder what you'd be praying for, wouldn't you? Transubstantiation at that moment? <laughs> yes. Or well, it may be the last day. Does a Paul offer some good insight into how we should handle this? Uh, that that um, you know, he says that the person whose faith is strong can eat what's put before him uh, because he's staying and be thankful because God provide, has provided everything for for him, and, and the person whose faith is weak only eats vegetables, and he too is thankful. Yeah, that. that... And, but if if. He also goes on to say that if him eating meat causes a brother to stumble in his faith, then he would rather never eat meat again. Yeah, I think there are three three different points that that are open for discussion here. One, the the point Paul's making there, in in the culture at Paul's day, uh, when you went to the market, into the bazaar to buy your foods, the meats, before they were... Um, put out for sale, the animal itself, just like in, the, in ancient Israel, they would sacrifice animals to Yahweh and so forth through the rituals of the temple. The uh, pagans would sacrifice the animals to their gods, and the meats put out had been offered to the god, and so some of the people with weak faith were afraid to eat the meat for fear that that meat had somehow the influence of this pagan god that could somehow curse them or make bad things come upon them. And, uh, and Paul is saying, look, if your faith is great, you understand that that piece of wood or that piece of stone that somebody carved out of their own hands and worship has no power over you. It can't do anything. So if your faith is great, then you can eat whatever that's, whatever you purchase in the market because there is nothing that that pagan, pagan deity can do to harm you through the food. Okay? Uh, it wasn't really about the diet. It was about this worship, which is just the opposite of what was happening in Daniel's day. Because So in Paul's day, if your faith is great, you eat the meat. Okay. In Daniel's day, Daniel was told to eat the, the meats that were offered to him by, uh, the, by uh, the eunuch there, the head eunuch. And he and his three worthies said, no, no, we can't eat this stuff for, for a couple of reasons. But one of the greatest reasons was their intelligence, their advancement over everyone else. They did not want them attributed to the gods of the pagans, the Babylonians. They wanted a distinction to be drawn. And if they had eaten the king's table, uh, all those foods had been offered to the king's gods first. And if, if Daniel and the three worthies rise above everyone else, then they and their mind will attribute this to the foods from the king's gods, and the king's gods are blessing Daniel and so forth. They made a distinction. Our foods have not been offered to your gods, and therefore our blessings, our advancement, our intelligence is coming from Yahweh, not from from the king's God. So in Daniel's day, if you have faith, you don't eat the meats. In Paul's day, if you have faith, you do eat the meats. You see, the circumstances determined really what was going on. It still had to do with, uh, are you going to somehow have influence in your mind from these pagan deities or not? Second thing. There was also a better understanding of who God was as time went along because you know, Paul had had the revelation of Christ to reveal to him. I'm not saying that Daniel didn't understand God, because Daniel was considered God's friend. But. I think it had to do with the mindset of the people. You see, who, who was involved here? Yeah, the people you're witnessing in the, in the New, in New Testament church, those people were, were fearful that uh, if they eat, that they would actually somehow be influenced by the pagan deities. Daniel wasn't worried about that. He was worried that by eating, the, the pagans that he was among would attribute his, his benefit from the pagan god. So it had to do with the people that you're dealing with. Yes? Now, what if you were invited to somebody's house and they serve pork chops? Yes, and I hadn't... And you eat the pork chops. Yes. Okay, because 
That's what they served you. Later on, you're trying to present the health message to these people down the road. And, so, and they said, well, but when you're at my house, early you ate pork chops. Well, that's because I didn't want to offend you in any way. You don't think these people would think, then you would rather offend God or give up what you believe in in order not to offend me? So, so you made a leap there. You made a leap of eating pork chops was an offense to God. Well, offense to yourself and whatever. Going against your convictions. Yeah, and again, that, that's where we, ha- we were going to go several levels. One was the level we were just talking about. The next is the level to the health of the body. To the health of the body. Why is it we don't eat certain foods? If we, if we don't eat certain foods, is it that, that God will be mad at us? No. 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 That God will punish us? No. That God will keep us out of heaven? No. Then why is it that we don't eat certain foods? It's not good for us. Yeah. Where in the Bible does it say that you shouldn't eat poison ivy? <laughs> I mean, we're free to have a poison ivy salad if we want, aren't we? Yeah, we sure are. Why don't we? God's not going to punish us if we do. Same thing's true with the pork chops. You eat the pork chops, having one pork chop in your life, is it going to make any significant difference on your health over the, over the course of your life? One pork chop. Yes. Assuming it's cooked well and it doesn't have active infection in it. Okay? One pork chop going to make any difference in the health of your life? No. No, it will not. It will not. However, how about one healthy meal in your life? You eat, you eat pork chops every day, and you eat, and you eat Big Macs, and you eat uh, you know, fries, and you eat uh, Little Debbies every day. And then, uh, and then one day you actually have a meal with fruits, nuts, grains, and vegetables once in your life. Will that healthy meal do any real benefit to you? No. No. You see, it's not the occasional thing. And so then we talk about, well, we've got to maintain the spirit temple. Let's do what's good for the spirit temple, right? How about if somebody... Uh, Somebody you love is in renal failure and you have the opportunity to donate a kidney. Will taking a kidney out of your body be good for your spirit temple? No. Hmm. Then should you do it? Should, should, you be willing, should you be willing to sacrifice or damage your spirit temple to save another? Yes. Yeah. You don't need hmm. two kidneys. How much damage is it? Yes, but, but, it, but, but taking a kidney out actually is traumatizing to the body. And it does put an additional drain on the kidney you have left. There, there is consequence to that. But does it damage the spirit temple or the physical temple? Well, the spirit temple, of course, is, is the body. And, and the, the relationship between the physical organs, all the physical organs have as their purpose to maintain the health of the brain. And so as we tax the physical organs, we impair the, their ability to maintain the health of the brain. And so there can be a consequence. So, but how much you love that other person. Yeah, but that's the point. Are you willing to make that sacrifice? Would you consider that sinful to, to donate a kidney? No. 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 no, even though it may be a tax on the, on the spirit temple. What would be a greater tax, do you think, having a meal where you eat a, a piece of a pork chop or, or giving a kidney? <laughs> and, so, and so it really depends on the circumstance and where you're at. If you're in a place where you actually believe that the opportunity to win a person for Christ would be shut down if you don't, like in this particular case, evidently, this whole group of people wouldn't have been able to administer to. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to sacrifice that? Or to self-rise up and say, no, 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 my salvation and what happens to me is too important to je- jeopardize into reaching them. Mm-hmm. You see, so it's not quite so black and white. There's a, there's a levels of, of circumstance here that come into play. Yes? Do you not think that... Um well, I've got several questions about this. You know, in other words, how did we extract? I know it's part of the health message and all that, but I mean, there's so much in the Mosaic Law that we don't follow. But it seems like this whole thing about pork, since that's been brought up, is something that is it defines Adventism, and it also, I think, is something that drives a lot of people away 
Um, because, I mean, help me understand the inconsistency, how we have extracted that out of the Mosaic Law and cling to it like it's one of the most important things that defines us as a, as a religion versus all the other things that is right along in the same chapter. You know, about not touching a woman after she's given birth to you know, a boy versus a female for a certain period of time and just all those other health guidelines. Yeah, and I think that's what they were. I think they were health guidelines. And I think some of them have been, have been um, due to Western society, due to hygiene, due to increasing availability of bathing and showering and ability to wash that you didn't have when you lived in a desert and how often did you get the wash out in the desert and so forth. And I understand that, but I mean, particularly in the day of mad cow disease, I mean, I would rather eat a pork chop than a, a sirloin. And yeah. I know you can take it to the whole world, you know, then you should be vegetarian, and I understand that too. But I'm just saying it's, it's the... Well, you have to remember when it comes to diet, God's plan, if you look at the Levitical law and what he told them, his plan was them for, for them to be vegetarians. He was providing manna for them. He was providing food that had no meat. They insisted. Well, they insisted on the meat, and they begged for it, and they and they and they longed after the flesh pots of Egypt. And because of this is where God, this is the same principle we're talking about, being all things to all people. They were turning back. They weren't willing to work with Him. So God says, "Okay, fine. You know, you won't take the best way. I'll meet you where you are to keep contact. I'll bring you some quail. If that's what what it takes." Now He preferred they didn't have it, but He brought it. And then they said, "You're going to eat meat. Fine. If you eat these meats, go back and look at the context. If you eat these meats." prepared in this way, it will be the least damaging to you. He wasn't saying if you eat these meats prepared in this way, it will be most healthful for you. That's not what he was saying. They were insistent upon eating meat. And so he gave them guidelines on which animals to choose and how to prepare them to remove the the toxins and the things that are most destructive to the human body. The fats had to be cut off. The blood had to be drained out. They had to be cooked until it was basically a a hard piece of leather. (laughs) Okay, And and then basically all you're getting is straight protein. And it was was only because of the hardness of their heart that he allowed this. Uh, This is different than what's happening in society today. In society today, even the animals that are quote-unquote on the clean list are no longer clean because the animals on the clean list aren't vegetarians anymore. They feed them the remnants of other animals. So they're, they're all carnivores now. And the, uh, the, the manufacture of beef in this country, they take the slaughtered remnants of the cows that have been killed and they feed them back to the cows. Now, because of mad cow's disease, they've stopped giving them neural tissue. So the brains and the, and the spinal cords, they no longer feed back to the cows. But they feed all the other remnants back to the cows. And so the toxins are building up. They also hit them with all types of antibiotics and steroids that they didn't use to get. So meat in our society today is wrong, not because God said thou shalt not eat meat, but because it is actually filled with all types of toxins, poisons, and pesticides, and everything else that is damaging to our body and brain, which impairs our thinking and functioning. And I completely agree with you. But that's not the conclusion of our denomination. Well, I think it is, because, because the conclusion of our denomination goes not just with what the Scripture says, it goes with the message from Ellen White that talked about moving away from all meat substances. That is really the message of the church, because of the, because of the pollution in our world, because of the toxins, and because the, the meats themselves will become unhealthy as time progresses, the message was we move away from meats. Not because God says he'll, he'll be mad if you don't, but because the, the actual quality of the meats you can get are so, so diseased that it would be unhealthy to take. Yes? Tim, you may remember years ago there was a biochemistry teacher here named John Christensen. Speak, speak up. John Christensen, you remember him? Yes. Yes. And he used to, the one thing he used to always teach all of us in biochemistry was that the key to life is moderation. He used to always preach moderation. And that's really true. If we just follow moderation, we'll be all right, I think. Yeah. 
you know, I think a, a similar case uh, can be made for mass-produced fruits, you know, vegetables. They're not that much, you know, better in terms of you know, pesticides and all of that kind of stuff. So I think his his point really is why we're selective in what we emphasize from the old code. Yeah, and I think there are many legalists among us, and I think that the, the reason why some people are selective, I'm not selective that way. I, I, I apply this principle of what's healthy. Now, there is a huge difference, by the way, between uh, vegetables and fruits and, and, and animals, and that's because um, as you go up the food chain, the pesticides actually concentrate. Remember DDT? And, and what, what animal got, got in trouble there? It was a bald eagle, because uh, the little, little, uh, little uh, rats in the field were, were eating the DDT, but it didn't harm them, but the rats got eaten by the snakes, and, and other predators, and the eagles ate those. And as you go up the food chain, these pesticides actually concentrate from one level to the next level to the next level. And the higher you are on the food chain, the higher concentration of these toxins you get. So um, even though they do use a lot of pesticides on fruits and vegetables, uh, eating them directly, you're going to get much lower concentrations than if you eat the animals that ate the, the, the uh, herbs and, and uh, fruit products uh, directly. So, um, but the, the point, there are many legalists among us. There are many legalists who believe that, that we have a code, a certain set of rules, and if you keep the rules, that's what puts you in good grace. Rather than understanding principles behind why the rules were given in the first place and incorporating those principles into your life for healthy living. And because uh, the, the pork issue can be a very black and white issue, a rule that can be applied and kept, people will apply that and feel a sense of peace with themselves that they're doing all that they have to do to keep the, the health principles that, that they've been given while they continue to eat other substances that are just as harmful in other ways. And so I think it's really, we, we have to grow past simple uh, rules that are applied to understand principles behind the rules and do what's healthy because it is healthy. But let's move on because our, our talk this week is really about ethnicity. Okay? And so Monday, let's, let's, in Monday it talks about the God-fearers. These are people who were not part of the Jewish nation but who had come out some somehow come to recognize the truth about God. And it gives some examples of non-Jews and, and some that I picked from the Bible that weren't in there. But let's think of a few. Naaman. Naaman was somebody who was a non-Jew. Nebuchadnezzar, while he had his difficulties, eventually came around and really recognized the, the God of Daniel as the true God. The centurion was talked about here in our lesson. And the Canaanite woman, all of these, all of these non-Jews came to a place where they were recognized as, as servants of God or, or, uh, or joined servants of God, even though they were not part of the Jewish nation. And recognize this, they did not participate in any of those Jewish rituals. Understand that. Think it through now. What does that mean? Okay, here we have, during the time before Christ abolished the old system, we have, a, we have people uh, identified in Holy Scripture that were in right relationship, saving relationship with God without doing any of the sacrifices, any of the feast days. Not, as far as we know, they may not even have been keeping the Sabbath. They weren't doing any of these things. How could that be? As long as written in their heart. What does it mean? What, what lesson do we learn from that observation? How do we under, does it give us insight to understand the purpose of the entire Old Testament system? Was there any merit in that old system? Was there any saving benefit in sacrificing an animal at the temple? Yes. Were they just un, they didn't know about the laws and therefore they didn't practice them, or did they know them and they just chose not to? Like how? Because I would think that it would be wrong if we knew what was right and then we chose not to do wrong, but we still have a. See, so, so that question uh, uh, throws the idea out there, maybe it's the right thing to do to do these Jewish rituals and that they didn't know it, so God winks at their ignorance. 
the question that that's what you're suggesting. Well, I'm just curious. I, yeah, I'm not stating my opinion. That's not my opinion. I'm just wondering. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question that a lot of people have because a lot of people look at the old system because it was so directed by God that they assume that there was that's what everybody should be doing. There's a hand over here somewhere. And there's a comment that uh, the centurion that, that Christ praised um, was well aware. I mean, he built a synagogue. Right. Now, he was excluded from the synagogue because he was a non Jew. So Wait, some of the. Maybe he was. He's from the temple, but maybe he didn't go to the synagogue. I'm sorry? Who said he was excluded from the synagogue? He was excluded from the temple, you say. Excluded from the temple, but he was, he was probably also excluded from the, their synagogue. You know. The Jews couldn't even go into the house of a Gentile without contaminating themselves. Right. So, I mean... In their theory. Yes. Well, we were just having this discussion this weekend in terms of another concept, but in terms of keeping the Sabbath. A friend of ours just got married early in January, and we were discussing the concept of was she any more married at that moment in time when the pastor said, I now pronounce you man and wife, than she was five minutes before or five minutes afterwards? Yes, in some senses she was. That physical manifestation, that material manifestation of that commitment is an important thing, but that is not the marriage. That is not the concept. The concept is what's going on in their head. God gave us, I think, a lot of material, physical things to manifest certain concepts for us because we are physical, material beings also. But those, those things in and of themselves don't make the concept. The sanctuary didn't make the concept of God's relation to us. But it was something that God put out there physically, materially, to say, understand this. When I keep the Sabbath... Any one given thing that I do doesn't keep the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath is setting it apart. That happens in my mind. But do I do certain things to facilitate physically what happens in my mind? Yes. I think that applies to all of these these things. The sanctuary, God didn't say do this because this is salvific in and of itself. God says do this because this helps keep your mind straight. Oh, I love that. I love it. Isn't that great? Did y'all, did y'all love that? And, and I think you're going to find that the Bible is going to support that. Look in Isaiah chapter 1, starting verse 10. Uh, and actually, we'll start in verse 11. He's speaking to the children of Israel, and he says, uh, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to meet with me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons, your Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Man, who asked him to do all those things? He did. Oh, and you notice down in verse 18 now. Verse 18, as you keep going, it says, Come, let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet and white like snow. If you notice, the key is verse 13. He says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. This is what she was saying. See, these offerings had no benefit whatever, except as they get our minds to think. Except as they open our minds to the truth about God. Except as they help us see past the lies of Satan. Unfortunately, what was happening in in their time is they had been so misunderstood that they became a barrier and an obstruction 
to seeing God. They became a ritual in their mind. People began to think that if they do this, they somehow earn merit with God. They somehow earn benefit with God, that God is somehow pleased when animals get killed or when we, when we burn fat on the, on the altar. It, it makes God feel good. They had twisted it so much it was closing their mind. And he hated it. He wanted them to reason it out and think it through. Do we do that today? Are we in danger of that today? Do we have areas in which we have rituals, symbols, things that we do that shut down the mind? And as you think about that, just to tie it back with the question of these non-Jewish people and what the purpose of the system was, the system, if you, the way I conceptualize it is, this whole system was merely a play. It was a play. Going to a stage, going to a theater, and watching an acting troupe enact their play. The Jewish nation was the troupe of actors. And they, if they were part of the nation, had to follow the director's screenplay. He was the director, he gave them their assigned roles, and they had to fill their roles if they wanted to be part of the acting troupe. Now, if they didn't want to be part of it, they could quit and leave and go somewhere else. But if they wanted to be part of the troupe, and so new people could come in, Ruth, Rahab, they joined the acting troupe. But when they became part of the troupe, they had to then follow the script, the script that the director had given. But these other people... They weren't part of the troupe. They didn't have, they were not obliged to follow the script. Because the script was merely an enactment to tell us what the reality was. The reality which is to be occurring in the mind. And the reality meaning, well, what does the lamb represent? Christ. And when, when the sinner would place his hands on the head of the lamb and confess his sin, what happened next? After the sin was confessed, the very next thing that happened... Who did? The sinner cut the throat. Recognize that very carefully. You know, does the sinner in the system represent God? No. Does the sinner in the system who's confessing sin represent Christ? No. No. Recognize this. Because most of Christianity, in fact, I think the final lie to be purged from Christian thought to complete the Reformation is this idea that God killed his son at the cross. God killed his son at the cross is taught through all Protestant churches, and it comes right out of Catholicism, which comes right out of paganism that God had to be appeased, and God had to execute His Son in order to be appeased. You don't find that in the old system. didn't teach it. It taught something different. It taught that when sin is part of our life, it separates us, remember? Cut the circulation, the circle of life, the circle of love we've talked about in here, the principles that flow from God through us to others, the circle of life, the circle of love. All life is, de- is dependent upon this. You break that circle, life ceases. Just like the electric circuit, when you throw the, you throw the switch and you break the circuit, the lights go out. When you cut ourselves off from the circle of beneficence, the circle of love, death ensues. The, the animal sacrifice taught that. As soon as sin is attached, the circulation is cut. The circle of life is broken, and the animal dies. And it's at the hand of the sinner itself, not at the hand of God. But the life there represented is not just a human life. It's that special life, that unique being in all universal history, that God-man life is represented by the Lamb. And so his blood represents his life. Interestingly enough, as soon as the blood that he shed, voluntarily, no one can take my life, I give it freely, is caught by the priests in the vessels, right? The blood was taken and ministered throughout the entire system. Now, in the Old Testament system, if the blood touched something, did it make it defiled? Or did it make it holy? Holy. You'll, you'll check your scripture. Everything the blood of the sacrificial animal touched became holy. It's interesting that some teach that that sanctuary became defiled 
defiled all year long with all those sacrifices. The sanctuary is being defiled with sin, defiled with sin, defiled with sin, defiled with sin. And on the Day of Atonement, the sanctuary has to be cleansed. It's wrong. You won't find it in Scripture. Everything the blood touches becomes holy. Becomes holy. Why? Well, and the, and the reason we get into this trouble is because we've taken the old system and we've tried to use it as the lens to interpret Christ's ministry. Rather than using Christ as the lens to understand the old system. We've got it backwards. And Christ said, unless you eat my flesh or drink my blood, you have no part with me. John chapter 6, 53. He said it several times. Now, was he talking red corpuscles there? No, he was not. He was talking, well, the symbol. The symbol of the old system. The lamb which sheds his blood. Christ which gives his, remember the, the Bible tells us the life is in the blood, right? It's the life of Christ. Unless we internalize the life of Christ. Unless we partake the life of Christ. Unless we have the character of Christ reproduced within us. Unless we open the heart and let the Holy Spirit download from Christ His perfect character into our hearts. Unless we become like Christ, we have no part with Him. That's what it means. And so in the Old Testament system, what's He doing? He's taking the the blood of Christ, the life of Christ, is being ministered throughout the system, which is cleansing, transforming, bringing us back into unity with God. It's a progression starting with the brazen altar, that brazen, unrepentant person who is converted. Interestingly enough, when the sacrifices were made by the tribes, all but Levi, all the tribes of Levi, if an individual, if you were a member of any tribe other than Levi, and, uh, and you had uh, a sin offering to bring, and you confessed your sin, the priest caught the blood and always administered it at the brazen altar. At the brazen altar. Representing the, the, the unconverted peoples of the world and this is conversion experience. But the priest and the tribe of Levi, they represent, as Peter tells us, the priesthood of believers. These are people who already know Christ. And if a priest had sin and he came as an individual sin offering, he also cut the throat of the lamb. The ministering priest would, cut, would catch the, the blood and would minister it at the golden altar. At the golden altar, representing the heart of the person who's converted but not yet fully restored as the blood of Christ, the character of Christ, is continually being taken in and transformed. Uh, additionally, the incense, which represents the prayers, are only burned on the golden altar because only the hearts of the converted pray, pray truly to God, to the true God. Uh, the, the showbread, Christ said, I am the bread of life. Anyone who partakes of me. The showbread represents Christ. Interestingly enough, the showbread was eaten only by the priests, which are, of course, the believers, only on Sabbath. Every Sabbath, the priest would get together, take the showbread and eat it, and put out new showbread. What do you think that symbolizes? Every Sabbath, we join together in worship as believers in Christ, partaking of the bread of life, nurturing ourselves as Christians, growing stronger. This is what the system is teaching. It's teaching our spiritual growth. We could go into so much more, but the whole system is designed to teach God's plan to heal, restore, regenerate us, and ultimately bring us back into one unity with Him. Day of Atonement. Yes. Many people in that, um, at the um, Jerusalem Center, whatever it's called, in, in Orlando or whatever, they show the sacrifices being burned, etc. Really, if you look, go back to um, Elkanah and, and when Samuel was born and everything else, these sacrifices were eaten by the people as their meal, as their celebratory meal, as part of the sacrificial system. Well, it depends on which sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, they were to eat some of the Passover lamb and not leave any till morning on the Passover. 
and they were to eat. The, 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 the burnt offerings and the sin offerings uh, were to be eaten by the priest, not by the people. The priests were to eat it. Uh, but not the person sacrificing. So it does depend on which sacrifice. And, and, and if you think about the meanings there, they have different meanings because we're teaching a lesson. It's just an object lesson. It's just something how to teach us God's plan. We are alienated from God. We, have, we don't have his methods, his character within. And this plan is showing us God coming down, becoming one of us, and restoring in us his character, his methods, or in the New Covenant, his law of love is written again in the heart and mind. And that is all just taught out in, in an enacted way in the Old Testament system. My favorite is... If you were a daily priest, which represents the priesthood of believers, wearing your white robes, which represent the character of Christ. I mean, this is in Revelation and other places. Uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 3, uh, when uh, he says he takes our sin away from us, taking away the filthy garments and putting on the, the rich white garments, okay? The, the character of Christ, the, the, only the priests wear those, the daily priests representing the priesthood of believers. Now, I want you to imagine you go into the holy place, which represents the church, because in the church we find the lamp, which is the, the word of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. We find the, the bread of life, which is the word of God we partake of. We go in the holy place, and we want to see God. We want to come close to him. We want to see him as he is. And we look towards the most holy place. And, and, and what do we see as we look back towards the most holy place? The veil. With the veil. And, and with, exactly, with angels embroidered. So we have something obstructing our view of God. We can't see God. Now, what do you think that might re- represent? As you think it through, in the Old Testament system, God gave explicit details on how to build this, did he? Not? What is the only part of the system that God had a divine part in destroying? The veil. When Christ died, he's destroyed. So wait a minute. Here's a system. It's something that's obstructing our view of God. It has angels on it. We can't see God. But when Christ dies, this thing is ripped open, and now we can see God clearly. What do we think that is? You bet. This is Lucifer and his lies about God that obstruct our ability to see him. Exactly. It's in. It's in. It's it's this progression as we come because it's actually separating the church from total unity with God. It's what's between us and God. And what about the angels on the veil? Yes. What was Lucifer? (laughs) And what is Lucifer's followers? The third that fell. What are they? Angels. Yes. And that's. And this is why, interestingly enough, when the when the priests would sin. And not only was the blood applied to the golden horns of the golden altar, it was sprinkled seven times before the veil. Why? Well, as Christians, when we sin, when we go out and we have a tele-ministry, and then we're visiting prostitutes in our tele-ministry, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Does that obstruct further people's ability to see God clearly? Does it add more obstructions in people's minds to see the truth about God when we as Christians go out and misrepresent Him? When we as Christians go out and shoot abortion doctors and blow up abortion clinics, does it make harder for people to see the truth about God? Yes. Therefore, when we repent, when we come back to a true relation with God, you see, it requires more work on God's part to remove those obstructions from people's minds so we can see God clearly. What blood sprinkles before the veil, where all those lies are obstructing our view of God. I'm still hung up on this veil being representing Satan. Representing the lies that he tells. The lies that he tells. Where, is that? Where do you hear, find that? I've never heard that before. Um, <laughs> it is in, let me find it for you. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, gospel is what? But what is the gospel? Good news. Good news about? Okay, the truth about God. Okay, listen to this. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, who's the God of this age? Satan. Has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see 
the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is the image of Christ Jesus. So the God of this age has blinded our minds so we can't see the Shekinah glory of God who is in Christ Jesus. You see, our minds are blinded by the lies of Satan. Now, it says in, sec- it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Christ took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Satan holds the power of death. What's that power? John 17.3 This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ from now ascent. So do the math with me. Life eternal is knowing God. That's what life eternal is. That intimate knowledge, that connection with Him. If that's what life eternal is, then what would eternal death be? Not knowing God. Satan has the power of death. What's the power? The lies that he tells about God that we believe that keep us from knowing Him that severs our connection with Him. We believe those lies. We don't know Him. We're severed. We are now in the camp of death. And thus, those, that veil was rent because the truth about God revealed at the cross destroyed those lies that Satan had told about God, opening the way to Him again. Now, where it comes confusion is in the text in Hebrews where some people apply this to the body of Christ. Hebrews 10.20. And it says... This is, we'll start in 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And people say, see, the veil is the body of Christ. Well, a couple problems with that. Remember, in in the Greek, there's no punctuation. People have to add punctuation as they understand it. So the problem with the idea of Christ is the veil... Who was it in the, in the actual day that Christ died? Who was it that, uh, that rent that veil? God. God, or somebody, you know, one of his angels at God's hand. Well, that means that God is the one who's killing us on the cross. Uh, anybody comfortable with that idea? No. No, Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not why are you killing me? Okay. Why have you given me up? Why have you let me go? So th- th- that doesn't fit. If you actually read the context there, the way it says is, a, a new and living way open to us through the veil which is his body. Now, which is his body referring to? The curtain or the new and living way? I suggest it's the new and living way. It's the way that's open to us. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not the curtain. The curtain was the obstruction of Satan, his rebellion, his lies, his distortions that have obstructed us from seeing God clearly. And Christ says, he is the light that has entered the world. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He is the, he is the answer. He is the, and, and when he died on the cross, he destroyed all those lies that kept us from seeing him. That's, so to me, as you, as you put the pieces together, it's a fascinating revelation of God's plan to bring us back into unity and oneness with Him, to heal our minds, as was said earlier. This is all about what's going on in our minds to free us from the darkness. All right, any questions about any of that? Kind of got off on something. Because we're on this whole idea of, of ethnicity, and I wanted to get to, to the last paragraph in Monday's lesson. So somebody read the last paragraph there in Monday's lesson. Here they were, themselves followers of Jesus, yet not understanding the fullness of the gospel. How careful we should be not to allow any cultural, educational, or social influences contrary to the principles of Christ to hinder us from living to the fullest the profession we claim to believe. The claim for ourselves. Okay, so... No cultural, educational, social influences should hinder us from living like Christ. What do you all think about that? We don't have problems like that in America, do we? (laughs) I mean, we don't have Christians that dressed up in white suits and white hats in the South and 
and persecute people of different race. We, we don't have that, do we? Or so-called Christians. Mm. There weren't a Christian group of people that lived in the middle Europe, uh, Germany, uh, this last century that killed six million people because of religion and race. That, that didn't happen, did it? Yeah. It can be much more personal and subtle than that, though. I mean, none of us that I know of in this room were Nazis. We may have were persecuted by someone, but you know, none of us participated. Very few of us have joined the clan. When I was growing up, um, my family was asked to not come back to the Seventh Adventist Church because we invited a family of a different race to join us on that Sabbath. Um, so I had this pious view of my um, openness in my mind. And yet, um, just recently, one of my colleagues or one of my co-workers at the hospital is a big proponent of Ebonics. And I was making fun of Ebonics. And I had to go home and realize, wait a minute, Wendell, that is one of God's children. And no matter what he says about something that you may not like or whatever, you have to agree that God died for him just as much as he died for you. And that's a little tougher and closer to home than joining the Nazis or the Ku Klux or whatever. Thank you. That's, that's, that's excellent. Absolutely. And that's where I was wanting to go. In our class, where, where do we find in our community, in our lives today, that we struggle with areas that, that, would, that we need further growth in being able to have this unity? Because remember, all things, Christ is bringing all things together under one head. There will be unity. There will be oneness. There will be one people, one creation, one harmony throughout the universe when God makes it new. Satan is a divider. He divides. He divides us into, into groups, into clans, into tribes, into nations to, to fight and pit against each other. Do we have struggles in this country right now with, with uh, loving our Muslim brothers and sisters? Well, well, how can we have that? Do you think there are political forces trying to infect our minds with hatred towards another group of people? Yeah, how vulnerable are we to that, to nationalism? Should, how many are proud to be Americans? You see, I served 17 years in the U.S. Army. Eight years active duty, nine years reserve. Should we be proud to be Americans? Should we? Hmm. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Hmm. Whose kingdom should we be proud to be part of? What does it mean we... Can't be proud to be a Christian too, just because we're proud to be American. Do you think that uh, there's any nation on this earth that is representative of the kingdom of God? No, no. not one. Then, if we, when the Bible says, "Guard your heart," for from it are the issues of life, or circumcise the heart. Do you think it might mean circumcise our heart from loyalties and attachments to earthly governments? What do we actually believe prophetically is going to happen in the future? What are the earthly governments going to do? All earthly governments. And is there going to be any earthly government at the end of time that's on God's side? No. Then why would we want to attach to them? Do we? You see, do you see how much harder it will be for us? If our hearts, if we're proud to be Americans. See, can't they call in our patriotism? Our patriotism to... Take up arms to kill another brother or sister of Christ. That hasn't happened? Hmm. Yes. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the issues, isn't it? Do you think the Democrats and Republicans, either one of them, are interested in unity in this country? No. Do you think they're actually interested in bringing the country together as a whole, or do they not get their power by, by divisiveness? They, 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 their bases thrive on dis, disharmony disunity and fear and stirring up the worst in each other and the prejudices and the biases they both gather they both gain support by stirring fears and stirring up prejudices and biases don't they yes yes yeah that it real close to home oh. is i think all of us belong to something and we have pride in that and the way we have pride in that is being sure it's better than somebody else that's the way we express that so if our uh, group, our race, whatever it is, we become too prideful, then the way we are able to keep that straight in our minds is that we're better than other groups. Not as good as people. And America clearly is the best country in the world. <laughs> One nation under God. What was, what was the Bill of Rights? Uh, or, the, or the Declaration of Independence? We, we, uh, uh, these truths to be self-evident that Except black men, right? Because wasn't that written in 17-something and, and all those people who wrote it uh, had slaves, didn't they? So how can these truths be self-evident in that situation? But the point is the country still legally... But there were a lot of people in, in the 1750s who were opposed to slavery who were working against slavery. Maybe not a lot of people, but there was... I grant you. I, I grant you that there... But the leaders that were involved in writing that... Did George Washington have slaves? Yes. Sure. Okay. And so, so Jefferson. Yeah, I mean, the, the leaders, to a great degree, many of them had slaves. Sure. They, they may have slaves today. But still, if we were to take a poll, what country in the world would you rather live in? But yes, and see, and that's just exactly the point. We begin comparing our country against the countries of the world. We compare our country to the countries of the world when we should be comparing the world to God's kingdom of love. That's true, but that's... That's where our comparison should be. It's not going to happen until Jesus comes. So I have to live in this world today. I want to go to heaven. But believe me, I'm glad I live in America. And what did Jesus say? Our citizen, or Paul said our citizenship is in... In heaven, that we are strangers and aliens on this planet, that we are we are we are to identify ourselves. Think about if you were actually a an alien citizen living in, uh, say, China or Soviet Union, and you were over there as a missionary from the Adventist Church in China. Would your attitude towards uh, identifying patriotically with the government of China be different? If you were over there as a missionary, would you, would you be, uh, uh, you know, of course, obedient to the laws and be a good citizen and all those things? But would you be invested in identifying you, yourself, as part of this country? Or would you see yourself, this isn't me, I'm here to bring a light to this country? Do we do that here in America? Or do we see ourselves as part of this? Rather than seeing ourselves, we are on a mission from a different government. We are here to represent Christ to the world and, and defend ourselves like it because what's going to happen here in the near future is Christians in this country are going to rise up and take political power. 
and use that political power to enforce Christian so-called principles of abusing the consciences of others for the good of the state. Is that what's going to happen? How can they do that except they've identified their, themselves with the government of the world rather than with the government of God? Yes? Does that mean we shouldn't remain politically inactive and just kind of remain neutral and live our lives? Or should we still, since we pay taxes, or at least some of us do, um, should, we, should we still vote and take part in that? Or should we just remain neutral? Uh, you know, I, I couldn't possibly speak for anyone else's position in here. I know that Ellen White in her day talked about the importance of, of uh, using your, in our democracy, using your vote to, to move things in healthy directions. For instance, if there was a law up for vote to legislate worship or to maintain liberties of, of conscience, you would definitely want to move yourself to maintain liberties of conscience instead of taking uh, conscience uh, the right away from people. Does that mean, though, that, and this is where the great difference comes, as an individual, we use our individual influence as our individual vote, uh, to, to vote on something like that is, would probably be very appropriate. However, does that mean we should start organizing the church to use the church's mission, the church's energy, to get the right judges in office, the right officials elected? You see, in, in, in Christ's day, did, did Christ or the apostles ever try to appeal to the Senate of Rome, to the judges or the governors of Rome, to change the laws, to get the right people appointed, to get, to get the government to reform? No. Now, was their government uh, a whole lot more moral than our government? No. It was a lot more immoral than our government. Their focus of the church, the church's mission, is not to reform governments of the earth. The church's mission is to, is to reach hearts and minds for Jesus Christ. That's our mission. And so when we look at it as an individual, you may have that individual responsibility to cast your individual vote. But what happens is churches, and you, you, you have to be asleep not to see this, churches in America are politicized. We, are, we have lost our, our mission and our focus, and we're, and we're invested in achieving political agenda, changing the laws, getting the right judges appointed, getting prayers in schools, outlawing certain medical procedures because we don't think it's conscientiously right, and so forth and so on, rather than winning hearts to Christ and letting Christ lead them to become like Him. And I think that's the danger. Back to the whole racial thing. Back to the whole racial thing. How is it that people who believe in Christ could end up killing each other. Do you remember in Rwanda? Do you know that there were Christians, Seventh-day Adventist Christians, killing each other in Rwanda? Yeah, Tutus and the Hutsis, yeah. How, how could that be? Tribalism over unity and oneness with Christ. Tribalism. And see, we, we worship a tribal God. What's a tribal God? Well, God is clearly on, on America's side in, in the war, isn't he? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. See, we worship a God who supports our agenda. That's a tribal God. And this is exactly the problems of the Old Testament. That If, if you got defeated in war, the Jews got defeated, the Babylonians knew that uh, God was on their side. Their gods were stronger than the gods of Israel. We still think that way, don't we? Rather than recognizing that God is a God of one race, the human race. One race, one group of people, the human race. And where did all this division come? Who's the divider? Satan. Satan. Then what about those languages, by the way? Who divided those up? I got a question over here. Uh, just a comment. No, it was the commerce president there in Rwanda who got convicted for genocide in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
All right, Wednesday's lesson, let's go quickly to Wednesday's lesson. We'll close up on this. In Wednesday's lesson, it talks about, uh, in the story, uh, Providence played a powerful role. This is the story of the eunuch. And it talks about, after obeying the angel, Philip went to meet the eunuch on the road. Interesting, uh, too, that Philip was to go to Jerusalem. It says, this chapter, of course, depicts Christ's substitutionary death for us. Now, I, I want to bring this up because some people believe that we don't believe in substitutionary nature of Christ's activity for us. That's not true. We absolutely believe Christ came as our substitute, but not... See, the, the problem comes is that we, some people teach that if you, if you think about Christ as your substitute, that he was a substitute to pay a penalty to appease an angry God in order to earn forgiveness or uh, somehow pay a debt to God in order to uh, appease Him. Uh, this, this is simply not true. And that's what we don't believe in. We don't believe that Christ had to die to pay off His Father. Or the Father had executed the Son in order for the Father to be willing to pardon or forgive. That, that is straight out of paganism. But Christ did become one with us, took our condition, our disability, our liability, our... Uh, uh, a terminal condition, if you want to put it that way, upon himself to do two things. One, reveal the truth to win us to trust. And two, actually cure, fix, heal, restore us to oneness with God. So the only way that could happen is if he became one of us. And he did it. Yes? How is that a substitution, though? In what way is that defined? Okay, imagine that an HIV-infected woman and an HIV-infected man get together and they start having kids and all the kids are born HIV-infected and their kids are HIV-infected and their kids' kids are HIV-infected. All the way down the line, everybody's infected. We're all terminal. We're all dying. That's since Adam and Eve. HIV is a metaphor for sin. We're born sick. We're born terminal. We're born dying. Uh, Christ comes, a unique being in all creation history. He was not created out of the dust of the ground, as Adam was. He was not born from a sinful mother and father like you and I were. He became part of the humanity by being born of a sinful woman, an HIV-infected woman, so to speak. But his father was God, which means in our metaphor, he was born with an immune system that could fight off the infection. And so in Christ, the infection was purged, cleansed, restored, and now from him we can draw the healing remedy. The Holy Spirit takes what Christ has achieved and applies it in our heart as we trust him and transforms us. Amen. That's what happens. And so it can only happen if he took our place, took our condition, took our sickness upon him, and actually overcame it. By dying? Yes, because the, the infection, what is the infection? The, the infection actually is the two antagonistic principles, God's law of love. Greater love is no man to give his life for his friend, which means I love you so much, I'll do whatever I have to for your health, benefit, welfare, including if it comes down to it, give myself that you might live. At war with Satan's infection, called in the world today, survival of the fittest. I love myself so much. It's fear and selfishness is what it is. I love myself so much, though, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Now, in Christ's life, look at it. He was tempted constantly to act to save himself. In Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. His feelings are tempting him to do what? Save himself. But every time the temptation came, he gave himself. And he said, no one can take my life I will give it freely. And the reason he had to go to death is, any, way along the t- uh, any point along the way, even on the cross, he had the power to stop it. If he would have stopped it, what would have won? Selfishness. selfishness would have won. The only way to extinguish selfishness was to not stop it and go all the way to death. And that's what he had to do. And it was an actual victory, a literal regeneration, a literal recreation. Hebrews 5.8 says that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who, who, who obey him and believe in him. In other words, once he achieved this victory, 
Yes. The confusion, I think, sometimes of substitution in my mind is Jesus' death was substitutionary for the death I was headed to. It was a substitution for what I was doing, not a substitution for what God would do if Jesus didn't do it. Exactly. Jesus substituted for what I would have done to myself had he not interposed. That's exactly right. He took our place in the course that we were headed on. We were on a path headed to death. He jumped in the middle of that path, went down that path for us, and in so doing, opened up a new path that we can take that will never lead to death. And if he didn't do it, that, that option would have never been open to us. That's a great way to put it. Pardon? Not my will, but your will be done. Total submission. That's right. A giving. A free giving. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love, a God of oneness, a God of unity. Lord, this world is divided. It's divided into factions, into tribes, into nations, into all types of little enclaves, Lord. We ask that you will come into the hearts and minds of all of us here today. That any prejudices, biases, misunderstandings, fears that we have, that it can be removed and we can come into unity and oneness with you. And as we come into unity and oneness with you, we will love others more than ourselves. And we can experience that community, that community of love, that community of Christ-likeness that you have for us, that, that as this world progresses and the two groups of people start polarizing on this planet, that we will have a community that represents you faithfully, that they will know we are Christians because we love as you love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.